Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. Women of the Middle East. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present the multiplicity of their voices and wishes to break overdue cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East. My name is Amal Malki. I'm a feminist, scholar, and educator. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Lovely to have you on Women of the Middle East podcast. It is an honor and a pleasure to be in here. Thank you. You are the embodiment of the feminist slogan, the personal is political. Your journey as a feminist and activist took a public form since you started your career when you were 23 years old. So as a gender researcher, (laughs) I would say that I can easily map your output Till today and through your activities, which are very multimodal, multilingual and multifaceted and relate each stage of your public activism to a chapter in your personal evolution. So I kind of deduced several thematic stages around which our conversation will focus. The first theme is war, displacement and marriage. So let's start here. You're a survivor of war, yet your story brings a dimension that isn't usually highlighted. This dimension is not unique to our culture. Of course, it happens in different cultures, but gives insights to the intersectional ordeal that a girl and a woman face in our part of the world. So you've been saved by the war by your mom, who arranged your marriage to get you out of Iraq in the United States. Although this was only when you were 20. And, but it also resonates with stories we hear about child marriages elsewhere in the MENA region, especially in Yemen. Yeah. Um, how do you describe that turn in your life, being saved through an arranged marriage and the sense of displacement that you felt and also how you connected it to your output, your activism? Well, first of all, I mean, I really appreciate the line of logic and question that you just framed and find it refreshing. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love your line of thinking. As for the marriage, it's interesting because I think as a woman in Iraq, or I would dare to say as a woman in the Middle East, I grew up thinking that the route to my freedom is through men, is through marriage, basically. And really that stayed with me for a long time until recently I liberated myself from that concept, you know, subconsciously and consciously. But when I was young, you know, there are things that define my life. You know, I was in Iraq. I was in war, uh, the Iran-Iraq war. And I was in a family living close to Saddam Hussein uh, as my father was his personal pilot and the head of civil aviation in Iraq. And we were in a close proximity. And I would fantasize the way I wanted to escape from that, you know, fear generally, was I would fantasize that a knight with a white horse would come and would take me out of that nightmare of fear that I was living in. The nightmare was only fear. It wasn't about material issues. I grew up privileged, but we were living in fear in Iraq during Saddam's time. And the fear of war, fear of Saddam, fear of everybody else, to be honest, you know, And even though my mom, who was, I would think, the first feminist that I got introduced to, 
She would make me read these feminist books as a youngster. She made me read all of Nawaz Saadawi's book and other books that I do not remember the authors, but I remember the title, Ana Hurra, I Am Free for Female, and many other things. And even though she told me you can grow up and do whatever you want to do, Habibti, and you can, you know, choose your destiny and choose the man of your life, even her, with all the choices that she ingrained in me, that I have that freedom of choice, at the end of the day, use the route of marriage for my freedom. Of course, you probably know, and for those who don't know, I end up accepting, not because it was forced upon me, the marriage. My father actually was against it. I end up accepting because my mother was crying and begging me to accept. And ultimately, I wanted her to stop crying. And I wanted to be a good daughter, uh, particularly because I already had an escape route with another knight that I thought it will be a knight. He will be a my knight only to end up not working out at all. So I wanted to obey and be a good daughter, surrender. And it was ironic, you know, so the first, let's say, let's call them knight, the first man <laughs> that I fell in love with. And I thought he's going to liberate me from, uh, you know, the surroundings I was living in end up being horrible and only wanted to be part of the surrounding and controlling. Then the marriage that she got me into, I come to America, this is supposed to be my freedom. He ended up violating me sexually and verbally a lot. So much so that I knew I am not to accept that. Yani, even if he is my husband, I am not to accept a violation, a sexual violation in bed, in my marital bed. And I escaped and end up marrying eventually a nice uh, uh, man. But the route was always through believing that they are my route for freedom. And it really took me a lot of time to escape my first marriage uh, with $400 in my pocket. And my family were in Iraq during Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. I could not speak with them. I could not, there was embargo and sanctions and I could not communicate with them that I escaped. I was afraid to be in America alone, but I managed. I got my working permit. I worked every single job there is, sales lady in the, in the department store and et cetera, things like that, an assistant and whatever. It took me three years to stand on my feet and rebuild my life, basically, and start Women for Women International. So even though uh, throughout the course of my life, I constantly do it on my own, in essence, you know, build my own life, of course, with support of other people. But I end up being the one who saved myself. It really took me a very long time to understand, oh, my God, I am the knight. I am the horse that he's riding. It is all me. I am my ultimate freedom and savior. No one can do it for me. I am the one who can only give myself the freedom. And I only realized that a few years ago. I define you as a strategic role model. Someone who uh, publicly speaks about their life, about the falls as much as the successes. We talk about war. We talk about culture that made you believe that you needed a man to save you. Uh, and we uh, speak about the imposter syndrome that all of us as women have too, that it took you so long to realize that I don't need a savior. I'm my own savior. What's interesting about your story, Zainab, is because you speak out loud and you tell it, it breaks stereotypes as you are speaking. It's very interesting that your story would actually defy 
the prototype they've got even about child marriages. I've worked with many Yemeni women and Yemeni activists. And as much as, of course, we're all against child marriages, but there's no blanket uh, reasoning for it. For example, in news, in Arab news, when the stories emerged from Iraq during the war, fathers, the most progressive and the most enlightened fathers, covered up their, their daughters out of fear uh, that they would be raped the moment they leave school. It's not always the man. It's not. It's the circumstances. Well, it's the circumstances and the stereotype also. So I really appreciate this question. And, you know, partially child marriage is used because I guess that's defined by 18 years of age, basically. Partially it's, it's, you, it's used to escape, as we mentioned in my story and as you mentioned in the cases that you're talking about in Yemen and other parts of the world and fathers covering their daughters are to protect, right? And to be honest, the other part on child marriage right now, which I came to learn when I you know, moved um, to the Middle East for a couple of years, because I was also like, as a feminist, I also embraced the whole idea that no child marriage, like, oh my God, 16 years old. No. You know, and I learned that in we there is no context. One, there is no context for safety, as you mentioned so articulately, as you articulate so beautifully now. But there's also context of sexual sexuality, to be honest. And this is I came to discover. And I came to discover because I was talking with um, a woman. I'm interviewing a woman that I happen to know. And her 16 years old is wants to get married. And she's extremely poor, extremely poor, like living in two mud house in Iraq. And I was like, what are you talking about? You are, you finish your school, you know, the, all the things that we talk, you know, finish your school, get your job, get yourself a job so you can get a better life for your family. Right. And his sisters, they like, no, Zainab, don't interfere. You're not getting something. And I was like, what? What? And finally, I realized that it's sex, that this is a 16 years old boy in a context or girl, to be honest. Right. But this case happened to be a boy in a context where a culture says you cannot have any sexual expressions outside of marriage. So the only way you can do is marriage. And it doesn't matter. And he is at peak of his sexuality, all teenagers, mostly boys and girls at peak of their sexualities and a culture that says that you cannot. So when we talk about child marriage, I also realize there's another context of it, which is sexual expressions. And so when the Western world looks at us, you know, oh my God, you do X, Y, and Z, and you are horrible people. And I came to like, come to learn in my own experience, to be honest, not as an Arab defending ourselves, but as a foreigner, working in different contexts in Bosnia and Afghanistan and Congo and Rwanda and Nigeria. And I came to catch my own prejudice and my own assumptions and stereotype of other cultures that we, you know, as the saying says, we see things as we are, we do not see things as they are. And when we see things as they are, we realize that there's so much more context and so much more frameworks for that. And that in essence, really people are horrible to their family. Rarely. I mean, it's that they, they are, of course. But most people are not sending their kids to marriage or or for whatever reason, because they're evil. 
They are standing because they are having context in which they cannot do something else about it. Another woman that I'm interviewed in Iraq who also married her daughter of at 15, and it was in exchange for the husband to send her to school. In my case, in exchange for me to be safe in America. And like, and we, th- that context is absent in, I would say, the Western feminist discourse in terms of discussing these issues. Exactly. Now, th- that was my second theme, which is violence against uh, women or gender-based violence. We know your personal experience and ordeal. I'm sure it must have shaped your reactions towards um, these matters. You know what these women went through. You feel the urgency uh, of providing them with the support they need. Does this add a layer of frustration to your activism, being too close from the subject matter? I think it is important to be close to the subject matter personally because it is it gives me always touchstone to reality. Always fact checking my assumption. It's always making sure that I grow and it's heavy, right? It's heavy to work on gender-based violence. Not only gender-based violence, I worked in war zones for 20 years uh, since the founding of Women Women International and running it and that was heavy because you see the most horrible acts of humanity in front of you. And they mostly are committed against women. And I used to come home and cry. And I would always tell myself, the day I stop crying is a day I should worry about myself, that it is important to be in that context. So what do you do to to protect yourself? I'm very empathic, you know, uh, person. But I have learned to create the space and the environment for me to nourish myself. And that I have learned that the cause does not require me to self-sacrifice, that this is counter-effective. And I have learned to identify what makes me happy. Literally, I know if I do X, Y, and Z, I am a happy person. And if I sacrifice X, Y, and Z, and they're basically, I have my seven rules for a happy day, I call it, right? And if I sacrifice these, I am not as happy. And when I'm not as happy, I am not as effective in my job and frankly, in my communication. I'm, I'm a public speaker. I give often uh, speeches and the days in which there, of course, as any speaker, sometimes it's excellent and sometimes it's not. And when it is not, it is because I haven't done what I needed to help myself, to exercise, to drink water, to meditate, to be in nature. Like these are, I have my essentials, right? When it is, when it's a great performance, whether it is public speak or at work or like boom, is because I have taken care of myself. But that is not related whether I am confronting the issue firsthand or not for me. I like to meet the women and encounter their pain and talk with them and learn from them. They, in my opinion, helped me become who I am. I would not have broken my silence and spoken my story if if it wasn't for the very women who I have worked with in countries like Congo, where they face horror, horror, And it was one particular woman who told me, I never told my story to anybody but you. And in her case, she was raped. Her daughters were raped. Her son was asked to rape his mother and one refused. They shot him, shot him on the foot. And she told me, I never told anybody but you my my story. And I looked at her and said, I'm a storyteller. I, you know, should I keep this story a secret? Because usually I go and speak about stories. 
And she said, if I can tell the whole world about what happened to me, I would. So other women would not have to go through what I have gone through. I can't go to the whole world. You can. You go ahead and tell the stories, just not to the neighbor. So if, it, if I didn't encounter her firsthand, I would not have grown personally. And I would not have had the consciousness that this illiterate woman in Congo, that we all feel bad for her, has more consciousness on the connection between breaking her silence and hoping that would spare other women through going from what she's gone through. And I, the educated woman, was hiding in my silence behind the poor woman's stories, making it all about the poor woman's story. But me, I don't have a story. And it really, I was embarrassed to catch myself in that moment that I was not as courageous as I had hoped to be and that she was the courageous one. I actually confronted myself to saying I either leave doing what I'm doing because I am not being in truth to them or do what I'm asking them to do, which is break my own silence. And that was the hardest thing I have done to break my own silence and reach to the point that you are talking about, which is modeling by telling my story. But for the longest time, I was just hiding, content to speak about other women's stories. For me, the encounter is where the growth is, but I have to put frameworks around it. So I maintain myself because the top line, (laughs) the headline is the cause does not require us to self-sacrifice. If we want women to be happy, we need to be happy. If we want women to be independent, we need to be independent. If we need to, if we need women, we want women to be free, we need to be free in our private lives, basically. And it took me a long time to understand the interconnection between the two. Our problem is women from the MENA uh, that were engulfed in, in, in the feeling of shame uh, and um the cultural responsibility of protecting the honor of the family. Just like you as a feminist, I find it very difficult speaking about personal issues. It's easier for me to help other women. But when it comes to myself, it's very hard to face some personal issues that I've gone through because of that uh, whole issue of shame and honor. You know, I had a lot of shame too. I mean, I really, the reason I hid my story because I was embarrassed of it. How could I tell the world that I am this, you know, feminist and I was in an abusive marriage? I was in an arranged marriage and my family knew Saddam Hussein, right? So I was so embarrassed because there wasn't a connection between what the persona I was embodying, this, you know, strong feminist and between my reality that I face from all of these violence and discrimination and And I just told you why I decided to speak, to be in alignment with my values, because I was not in alignment, right? And I had to confront family, to be honest, and community, because I, by putting my story out in our culture, we are scandalizing our family. I was lucky not to lose my family, but it was not an easy journey. It was a struggle. It was worry about them abandoning me it was all of that and yet and the dichotomy I always face truthfully is always between my family and what they have to say about the issue and my father particularly you know because my mom is dead and between my truth and that struggle between 
don't speak up. And between me speaking up to follow my truth is a constant struggle. And it is a very frustrating struggle. And it's a struggle that I honestly, you know, you give and take in it. But I ultimately came to the conclusion is I cannot sacrifice my truth because to sacrifice my truth would be to betray myself. And I have come to the conclusion that the deals we are told by society that don't speak up so you do not scandalize the men only legitimize our oppression, in my opinion, and prolongs it because we are keeping the secrets of our violation. We, and then we become part of the prolonging the story and passing it on from one generation to the other because we are told, don't speak. Eh, da, 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 da. And then they continue. The oppression and the rape and the violation is continues. It doesn't stop. So I am in this stage of my life where I like, I'm done because that deal was wrong. <laughs> like it didn't work out. We gave it to you. We stay silent. It's continuing. It's not paying off. And I don't want to be like my mother or grandmother or great grandmothers who all died in their silence. We have to cut that process, you know, of that continued violation. So is it easy? No, it is hard. It is extremely lonely. And I am constantly in fear of losing my family's love. So far, it's a struggle and it works. So far, it lands. How some, alhamdulillah, somehow, some way it landed. But it's also give and take. You know, I give and take. Okay, I'm not going to push this way. I'm going to push this way. But it's a constant struggle. For me, the equation is I am no longer willing to betray myself. Not for anybody. Most definitely not for any man. Uh, this uh, hits uh, very uh, close to home. I, I, I totally understand you. I want to speak about the third uh, theme on hybridity and belonging to two worlds. Again, I believe that you're a great representative of the podcast title, Woman of the Middle East, a title that I've uh, picked carefully to be able to capture women's diverse realities across the MENA region. Also to avoid the umbrella terms that have been used to describe us, right? We're Arabs, either Arabs or Muslims, and usually they conflate between Arabs and Muslims. I wanted to capture the non-Arabs. Like the Amaziri woman, for example, I wanted to capture the non-Muslims and women who belong to different religious backgrounds in the MENA region. The title was chosen intentionally to include women of Middle Eastern origins who are living abroad somewhere else. I've just found that the numbers of Muslims in European countries is estimated to be 44 million uh, or 6% of the total population. And this number is going to grow. Definitely, as long as there is migration and, and wars and conflicts, and it might reach to 7.4 uh, by the year of 2050. So it was important for me to capture that reality. Uh, again, trying to break a stereotype that is out there about us. We're not all Arabs. We're not all Muslims. Um, we uh, come from different backgrounds. We have diverse realities that are subject to matters that is not only the culture, right? Economy, politics are also factors that impact us drastically. You're, you belong to two different worlds, very dichotomous worlds, I might say. 
How were you able to consolidate both identities in one hybrid one? Another very good question. I have to say, I call myself from the people of the bridge because I'm neither here nor there. And I've always, like always, that has been my life. When I was in Iraq, uh, the people, so my family and myself as part of Saddam Hussein's regime, we were not part of his regime, not politically and not from his um, origin, like not, we're not from his tribe or town. So we were friends, but had nothing to do with the politics of things, nor the tribal aspects of it. We did not belong to him but we did not belong to the people and we were in between two worlds. That's the title of my memoir. And then I come to America and I am from another part of the world in Iraq and then I'm living in America. And eventually my identity got a hybrid, to be honest. You know, I do qualify right now in my self-identification as Arab American, that they are both coexist in me, the American culture uh, and the Iraqi Arab culture. They are, I would say, very much part of me, both of them right now, after 32 years in the States. At the beginning, it was a struggle. Who am I? What am I? Then eventually I came to realize I actually like this not belonging anywhere because I get to choose what aspects of that other culture do I choose. So I I get to pick, you know, and, and select which part of my Arab that I want to identify with and which part of my American that I want to identify rather than completely be sucked into all the aspects of culture. At the moment, honestly, uh, what anchors me is not even that. What anchors me is a sense of belonging to myself that comes out of profound and important connections to my own heart to nature and to God. That connection is personal, is private, and it gives me a sense of who am I that is outside of my accomplishments or my identity or of my strength. And to reach that point of saying, of reaching, I am. I took a lot of work first of healing from the trauma of war and rape and all of that, then work of accepting my light and my shadow and embracing them both, and then a work of cooperating both into the I am aspect of it. So what anchors me right now is a sense of self that is outside of what I do. I'm in my 50s, so that took a while to get there. But it was my spiritual journey, not my professional journey, that led me to that. And I rarely talk about my spiritual journey because I I feared that if I spoke about it, it will get in the way of my feminism or my activism. Or now I reach a point is like I am all. I am the spiritual person, and I am the activist, and I am the humanitarian, and I am the gardener, and I am the warrior. And they do not need to be consistent. Like I don't need to be, it's okay not to be consistent in all of these things. And that the consistency we ask of people, you know, you either do this or this, how could you do this, but do that? That for me, I don't buy this uh, thing. Not uh, It's okay to be inconsistent in my consistent identity. 
let's say it this way. In other words, I am consistent in who I am, even though culturally and perceptionally, I may be inconsistent in my practices or my identities, but I am consistent in who I am. So now that sense comes from within. From the, it helps a lot, especially in a time where we always compare ourselves to others, uh, exasperated by social media, all that. It helps a lot going back to knowing that I am, I am. Wow, beautiful. See, I'm a hybrid myself. I'm over the, the description of the bridge that you've put uh, at the beginning because I, I don't think I'm in between. It's not a matter of not belonging to one or the other. I belong to everything. I belong to everywhere. My hybridity gives me this advantage of view um, where I can see the whole picture, where I can belong to different people from different parts. But definitely connecting with the self is something that we will talk about in fifth theme. Uh, I want to talk a bit about the fourth theme in, in your career as well on men as allies and expanding the support of sisterhoods uh, to include men. And this is uh, through the men's um, leadership program that you've created. Now, how do you deal with toxic masculinity and patriarchy that is so entrenched that it became the structures that oppress women? How do you speak to men if you know that they belong to those structures? You know, I wouldn't lie to you. I was very angry at men for the longest time in my life. And I still am probably because I see the injustice that they commit. And I not only I'm not talking about my life, that's easy actually i've seen again i worked in wars and reported eventually out of wars and the horror the horror that i have witnessed was exclusively caused by men that's just the reality and i would be shocked not to have that anger like or, or so many women not having that anger however one thing happened to me that got me on a certain trajectory. And honestly, it was in Afghanistan, right after September 11. I was working with Afghan refugees in Pakistan. And once, when America and its allies went to Afghanistan, I, a lot of the refugees migrated back to the country and I was with them, trying to see how we can support them, how we can help them, all of that. And it was in a refugee camp on the borders of the country. And we were working with women, interviewing women, all of these things. As we were leaving, two men came. They looked, as far as I was concerned, like the Taliban, the, the, the look. And I was scared. And I don't usually get scared that often, but that time I was scared. I was like, oh my God, they are here to kill us. So I whispered to my Afghan colleague, I was like, we need to like, just go calmly to the car and then just get out, out of it. And she said, we can't, uh, because if we do, if we escape, they will suspect us and they will suspect the women that we just talked with and they may punish them. So we have to stay. So I stayed and my heart was pounding as that they arrived towards me. And then as they arrived, they spread their arms and gave me their hands to shake mine. And they said, we are here to thank you for making our wives happy. We have never seen them smile as much as we have since you have been there with them. And of course I was like polite, oh, you are welcome. But inside of me, I was so ashamed that of my prejudice against them. And I caught myself in this moment of saying, oh my God, I am risking becoming what I'm fighting against. 
I'm fighting against the stereotype of women as we were just talking in the early part of this conversation, right? Don't stereotype me as an Arab or Muslim or Iraqi woman or MENA woman or whatever. Like, But I'm actually doing the same to men. If I am fighting, don't corner women as one identity and one thing. I am cornering men as all one identity and one thing. As a result, I embarked on a learning journey with men where I just talked with so many men. In my case, because I was working in war, so it, it they came mostly from conflict areas. Up until then, I really thought of them as rapists and killers. In talking with them, in, in just talking, I met men who could never kill. And they were ridiculed and emasculated by other men for not being able to kill. I met men who were never able to rape and could not and will not do it. And they were violated themselves by other soldiers for not raping. And I met men who were malicious and who were killers. And they admitted to raping so many women. And I met men who were like, if you logic with them, they're mostly religious men. They're like, yeah, society cannot fly without women in it. And I met the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I realized they are good and bad and ugly in men. They're good, bad, and ugly in women and in all genders, to be honest. And that I was wrong in stereotyping one over the other. As a result of that came the men training uh, that we developed at Women for Women International, where we worked with men at the local villages who are leaders. Imams, priests, militia leaders, you name it, to actually work with them and through them to change their minds about, to show them that good leadership incorporates women and doing this X, Y, and Z to women's rights. And the success rate was tremendous. We were, I would say, mm, subtle. We did not say we are here to protect women. We said we are here to teach you how to improve your leadership. We, but we designed the program. We said every word in the program. We just sent men to implement the program. And actually, we had many successes, including a militiaman that I uh, interviewed who stopped raping and who stopped ordering rape and switched completely to, you know, advocating for rights and equalities for women. Now, he's a criminal still, but in the short term, at least we stopped him. Imams who were giving Friday sermons in Afghanistan and in Iraq about women's rights, that we helped them write. Then I did a show on the Me Too movement here in America called Me Too Now What? The purpose of that show was also not only talk about the violation of women, but also to deconstruct how society and many of us have been complicit and complacent in allowing that violation and objectification of women. And part of that was to actually heal our relationship with men and how can we embark on conversations with men. Is that work done, Amel? No. Do we need reconciliation, honestly, between women and men? A hundred percent. Do I see women very angry? Yes. It could be a process of my age or my evolution. I don't know. But do I believe anger has a merit? Absolutely. Anger is a charge. It's important to get the fire off, to get like to light the fire rather, right? But anger is destructive if it keeps and maintain the fire. In other words, it's like a match. 
one match to get the fire and have people rise and speak and break is very important. And I am for that anger. And I just told you I have anger in myself, right? But it is very important that we do not lead with anger. Because when we lead with anger, we lose the allies. We make them afraid of us rather than bring them as allies and bring them and become part of us. What's happening, for example, in my opinion, in the Iranian revolution right now, which is a magnificent time and moment in history where women are leading a revolution against an oppressive regime and men join them in that keeping women and women's rights and demands at the center of the revolution, right? That is historically important. Now, I don't know, I have not studied or deconstructed the Iranian revolution to see why, you know, uh, this has shifted, but it's possible to get men as allies, when I'm trying to say, in our demands and our demands as rights. And there are lots of men in our region as well as outside of the region who are. But to get them as allies, we need to lead differently and demonstrate the new leadership we want to see in our behavior, in ourselves, in our tones and everything. And that's hard and that is unfair because we are in pain and we have come from generations of pain. And it is, in my opinion, the only way we can move forward despite the fact that it is unfair. The victim, in my opinion, any victim group, has to be the one who paved the path forward. It can't be the oppressor who paved the path forward. It has to be the victimized groups who articulate how to pave a path forward. And a good path forward incorporates all and heals all. It does not separate. It does not divide. It says, you have done this and that to me for generations, for centuries. And I am stepping up in my feminine leadership, in my feminine values. I'm not emulating your masculine leadership. I am now demonstrating a new way of leadership that is inclusive of you and me to move forward. And so so we're not there yet, I believe. Women are not there yet. It's a growing moment in history. We need to rise to that. Uh, We can do it. I believe and I trust what women can do it, but we're not there yet. Beautiful, um, Zainab. Zainab, have you written anything on feminine leadership in, in your books? Ay, 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 ay. <laughs> Honestly, I was working on a book on feminine leadership and had put it to, to rest for the time being, although you're encouraging me to, to pick it up again. I had put it to rest for the time being because it's a lot of, I had to like understand, you know, What's the unique thing about what I'm saying? There's so many books on women leadership. And what is the unique thing? And it's also so personal for me. Like I discovered my personal journey through my spiritual path, right? It's so personal. So I didn't know how to deconstruct uh, that into steps for everyone else, right? However, I do believe that every woman and men, for that matter, can find our new values outside of the culture and the society we grew up. And I would dare to articulate these are feminine values. Understanding them is one thing. Implementing them is another thing because it is hard 
to be the one who was setting the new rules, right? I don't know how to describe do this and that and that. Like I, I don't have a steps for anybody <laughs> to do it. The only highlight I have is the closer you are to yourself, the closer you are to your heart, the more wisdom you can access from your heart's language and your heart's wisdom. And that is for me the first step to define and articulate what are feminine values. I give talks, a lot of talks, and usually I touch on feminine leadership and that, you know, all leadership frameworks are masculine leadership frameworks and we need to feminize them. And I have a couple of tips. Anger, basically be angry. And that's the fire in your belly. Let the lady anger rule and bring justice to the table. Those kind of things. Also, one of the things that I speak about how a feminine leadership is an ethical leadership. It's easier to give examples from your own personal story. Yes, I'm an educational leader and in a society that is male dominated. I did this and that, and it's easy to, to pinpoint how this is different than the male one. But relating it to the self, does the soul have a gender? <laughs> Aren't we, right? But as you said, we all have the feminine and masculine in us. Uh, many women have um, assumed masculine um, traits to be leaders. So I, I do urge you, please go back and, and finish that book. <laughs> well, I'll let you know. And maybe I should interview you if I, when I assume uh, the, the work on the book. I should definitely will be, circle back to you as one of the first people to interview back. <laughs> Zainab, the final stage, our theme was healing and finding your truth and speaking your truth. And you spoke very um, eloquently and beautifully about the journey, the evolution of the soul and how you reached where you reached. What would you say allows you to, to live out your purpose? Where do you get your energy from? I know you said you've got seven habits of success. There's something else, something that comes from deep inside you. So few things. Because I've always known my purpose in this life. And I think I am lucky for knowing it. And it's thanks to my mom, you know, who made me read all these books when I was a teenager about not only women's oppression, but black people's oppression in America and different oppression. And when I was 16, I remember telling her, Mama, when I grow up, I'm going to help all women. And she looked at me and she said, and honey, you can and that was the best gift, you know, one of the best gifts my mom gave me that she believed in me at a, uh, age 16. So I, I consider myself lucky, alhamdulillah, really, for knowing it, articulating it, and for having, at that time, one person believing in me, and eventually many others. So that's a blessing. And if you don't know what's your purpose in life, you expose yourself to different issues. But in my opinion, the first place to go is to your heart. So this is to answer your second question. So one of my seven rules for a happy day, not a successful day, happy day, because, you know, success and happiness are not necessarily connected. But one of them is an appointment with my heart. That means my meditation. It's a private time that I have for my heart. To be very honest, it came from an absolute vulnerability. I was very sick a few years ago and I thought I was dying and... I could not think or read or write. So I just meditated for hours. And that mm, took me to a beautiful journey, a beautiful journey where I realized the heart has a language and it has knowledge. 
And we are so mind-led that we're not accessing our heart's wisdom. And so the reason I call it an appointment with my heart, because when I go there and I imagine my heart's hand holding my hand. So I don't know about soul having genders. I know about my heart and no, it doesn't have a gender, but it has knowledge and wisdom. I came to realize it's like discovering gold within discovering precious uh, gems within yourself. And I was like, there is this source of knowledge that I have and I need to tap into it on everything and every day. So I do that. And that gives me an access to everything to even before the interview today, I meditated to get that knowledge, to get that aspect, to have a perspective of my life. But then there are other things. So for me, the other one is nature. Any connection to nature helps for me. It teaches us so much. I go, I, I go on a hike almost every day or my neighbors have horses. So I go and help with the horses uh, as often as I can. Even the broken trees in nature are beautiful. Everything in nature is beautiful and it grows and it dies. It's a cycle. And like, I feel my, my daily walks are my teachers. So I have these seven rules, it's meditation, appointment with my heart, be exposed to nature, art, art. And I'm a mission-driven activist. I go out of my way to expose myself to art because there's something about art that's so beautiful that they make the ordinary beautiful. And they help me find the beauty in the ordinary. So we're always trying to like go to exotic places or do exotic things. Art shows us the beauty in the ordinary, and that is so beautiful for me. So it helps me appreciate the ordinary of my life. And then there is connection with family and friends. You know, that is because we need to maintain love. It cannot come on its own. This biggest lesson I learned from those who love me, they maintain it. I used to be a kind of person like, I, of course, you lo- I love you. I don't need to tell you that. All. No, you need to maintain love and nourish it and feed it and water it like you water a plant, you know. And the others drink lots of water, eat healthy <laughs> and live your purpose and live your purpose. Now, my purpose is happens to be helping women. Now I'm putting all my purpose in Daughters for Earth, another group that I recently founded to mobilize $100 million to support women uh, who are doing climate solutions and celebrate them and engage every woman to be part of climate solution because we are daughters for Earth, you know, and and we are to protect our mother Earth. So I'm lucky to have that purpose. That came from me out of like feeling I owe it to Mother Earth to give it back. I take so much of it, I owe it to give it back. But some, I have friends who have kids, my brother's purpose is his kids. Mm-hmm. And that is holy as well, equally holy, right? So they do not compare purposes. Do not compare beauty. Do not compare accomplishments. As long as compare, are you happy with yourself or not? Are you live fulfilling your destiny or not? And if that is raising your child, then that is the best thing that when you can contribute to the world. And if you want to, whatever, help Mother Earth, or that's fantastic. It does. There is no judgment. But the judgment is do not betray yourself. Mm. That for me is a judgment. As long as you're living your truth, being your truth, speaking your truth, that is fabulous. 
But if you're betraying your truth, then that's the worry. That is the worry. Zainab, I, I wish you a long, fulfilling life of activism, of truth, of uh, authenticity. And if I leave we, you with one thing, I want to leave you with a, a theme that I wish you would consider to develop in your life. And that's uh, connecting um, and being a part of the feminist movements in, in the MENA region. I did not see those connections, but with the amazing things you do, we need you definitely. Your hybridity mm. gives you an advantage. My wish and my hope really is to see that connection between you and the feminist movements in the MENA region. Can I say, I honestly, I would love to, and you touch on a very sensitive point for me because I did try to go back to the Arab world and to the MENA region and did a show called Nida, show Barnamish Nida in Arabic. And it was such a hard experience for me. It was a challenging experience on many levels, personal, mostly and societal. It was challenging coming back. And so I came back to America and said, okay, I tried my best and I maybe I am not maybe I'm not accepted anymore in the MENA region. Maybe I'm no longer uh, there. So for so there is a like a bittersweet feeling because I really tried and it's my people like so there's love that does not compare to other love. But it it it's a sweet uh, thing to like know that no there is still a route and there is still a journey and there's still a way to contribute and I appreciate you saying what you said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us on Women of the Middle East podcast. It is really a pleasure and an honor to have you. I know many people included look up to you and look at your journey and learn. Thank you. My pleasure. Truly. I truly enjoyed this conversation very much. Really. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Thank you for listening and watching. To stay up to date with Women of the Middle East podcast, you can subscribe and don't forget to rate us. If you would like to contact me directly, you can do so on Instagram or via email.